It just doesn't feel like summer without an ice-cold Coca-Cola in your hand. Stop by Speedway today and grab three 20-ounce bottles of Coca-Cola or Coca-Cola Zero Sugar and get 500 speedy reward points. Or pick up even more delicious refreshment with a 20-ounce bottle of Diet Coke, Sprite, or Fanta. So no matter how you soak in that summer sun, at home or on the go, grab an ice-cold Coca-Cola at Speedway and enjoy. Happy day after Halloween. It's Eric Erickson here. Welcome. The phone number 877-973-7425. 877-97-ERIC. Welcome across the state of Georgia, the southeast, the nation, the world. Uh, streaming on Facebook Live. It is, uh, it's cold. Let's just put it that way. It's cold. It is really cold outside this morning. Uh, in fact, around the state of Georgia right now, temperatures uh, in a lot of places bordering together, yeah, it's in the 30s, 34 in Clarksville, 36 in Rome, 30 in Blue Ridge, uh, all the way down in Eastman, Georgia, 37 degrees, 34 in Adairsville. It's even 39 here in Macon. Uh, it got cold, 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 cold. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, the cold actually this time of year seems appropriate. I hope you had good Halloween last night. Um, the wind picked up. The clouds disappeared, the moon came out, and I've got a giant inflatable dragon in my yard, and the wind was so strong in making, I had to unplug it. The neighbors had this, it's it's hard to describe. The neighbors have this beautiful home, they've painted white, it was a beautiful color brick, what your standard red brick, uh, and they painted it white, they've antiqued it, and the entire outside is decorative in teals and pinks. The inside of the house, the walls are now pink. I knew the previous people. I don't know. It's an orthodontist and his family. They're very nice people. Very, very nice. But they had, I, I think it was a giant inflatable pig or some such with a skeleton mask on in, in the or in the front yard. It was a, just this giant inflatable, and it wasn't tethered, and everybody on our block saw it go airborne when the wind picked up. I was like, ah, mine was staked down with, with rope. I thought, I, I better deflate my dragon. Um, theirs deflated when it came unplugged as it went airborne. It was a mess, um, but we've got so much leftover candy because nobody showed up because of the rain. Uh, in any event, let's get into impeachment. I want to do an impeachment primer for you uh, this morning, if we can. Before I get there, this hour is brought to us by First Liberty of Georgia, First Liberty Building and Loan. If you're a small business, medium-sized business, you want access to capital without going through a bank bureaucracy, go check out the Frost family at firstlibertyga.com and let them know I sent you. Thank you to them for their sponsorship, First Liberty Building and Loan, firstlibertyga.com. The president is now under an impeachment inquiry. Let, let's get the language right, because the media is doing such a terrible job now of explaining the language, explaining the lingo, if you will. Um, yet what happened yesterday was not truly a vote on to impeach the president of the United States. It was not truly a vote to impeach the president. And please do understand that, uh, that it was a vote on the rules of the impeachment inquiry for when it becomes public. The Democrats did not want to say they were actually voting now to begin an impeachment inquiry of the president because Nancy Pelosi had previously said that's what they were already doing. And because she wants us to believe that's what they were already doing and they don't have to follow past precedent, they can do it their way. The Constitution says the House sets its own rules and the House has the sole power to impeach. Therefore, the House of Representatives, and she's right, 
There are some people saying out there that this process is unconstitutional. It's not. She's following the Constitution. The Constitution gives very clear latitude in how she can do it. But what she is doing and what I think is notable is that she is deviating from past processes. She is deviating from the way the House has been doing it since Richard Nixon was investigated. And I think that is problematic. I think that this will come back to bite them. It will give Senate Republicans an excuse to not treat this as seriously as they would otherwise be required to treat it. Here's Chris Wallace uh, late yesterday on you Fox know, It's News. interesting, this resolution, because uh, Juan says, well, this is what the Republicans asked for and they're getting it. I'd say yes and no. Uh, they, they wanted a vote on the full floor of the House. They're going to get that. Uh, they wanted this to be an open door process, not a closed door process. They're going to get that. On the other hand, the Republicans are going to have plenty to complain about in terms of the process that this resolution calls for. First of all, in terms of Republicans, when they have these hearings, it says Republicans can offer their own subpoenas to call for documents, to call for witnesses, but subject to the approval of the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff. I suspect a lot of Republicans aren't going to be happy about that. They also wanted the president or the president's counsel to be more involved in this as Clinton's counsel was involved and able to actually interrogate Ken Starr uh, during the Lewinsky scandal back in 1998. In fact, during all these open hearings, the president and his attorney are missing. The only time they're able to, to sit in is when it gets to the Judiciary Committee. And there may not be any public hearings or at least hearing from witnesses during the Judiciary Committee. It just may be marking up uh, articles of impeachment. You know, in terms of the politics of this, it's interesting because Brett was exactly right. A few. Yeah. Uh, we'll we'll leave Chris Wallace there. Yes, this is a problem. You see, the when the Clinton impeachment happened and they brought Ken Starr in, what happened is the House had a formal vote to move to the Henry Hyde was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. He offered a resolution to advance uh, an impeachment inquiry to the House Judiciary Committee uh, to begin holding hearings to draft articles of impeachment. Uh, the very first witness they had was Ken Starr. Ken Starr came in, uh, was put under oath, and the House uh, Republicans asked Ken Starr questions, and the Democrats ceded their ability to ask questions to uh, the President Clinton's lawyer. And so he probed Ken Starr on behalf of the Democrats instead of the Democrats doing it back then. Uh, now, we don't even know if that's going to happen. We have no idea if they'll be able to do that. Uh, it, this will deviate. And in fact, in fact, in fact, uh, one of the big issues here will be that the Republicans in the Senate can say that the the evidence handed over by the Democrats to the Senate in order to shape an impeachment trial was deeply flawed. And that will be a very good argument for some of them. I think that's a better argument than the argument right now is that uh, the Ukrainians still got the money, therefore there was no quid pro quo. Now, just because the Ukrainians got the money and didn't do what the president uh, said does not mean the president did not try to get Ukraine to investigate his political opponent by using the power the presidency that that's the ultimate issue here in impeachment um now that argument some people will like it some people won't like that argument but i think the republicans in the senate can say wait a second you guys didn't give trump the same courtesies we gave bill clinton lindsey graham is the chairman of the senate judiciary committee lindsey graham was an impeachment manager against bill clinton in the house lindsey graham can say hold up guys we allowed a complete exploration of the evidence 
in the House Judiciary Committee against Clinton. We allowed Clinton's attorney in to probe the witnesses and find weaknesses and draw out exculpatory evidence. You guys haven't done that. What the Democrats are scared of here, and this is why you need to understand that they're doing what they're doing, is they don't want the Republicans to uncover the whistleblower. That's why the Democrats are where we are right now. They don't want the Republicans to uncover the whistleblower. Now, why wouldn't the Democrats want the Republicans to uncover the whistleblower? Uh, I would submit to you the reason is because the whistleblower is a partisan Democrat who helped the Obama administration. And if the the current reports are right from Real Clear Investigations, uh, helped Susan Rice draft anti-Trump talking points, who has nursed grievances against the president and has been a serial complainer and whiner about the president behind the scenes. I think the Democrats are trying to protect a partisan, and that's why they want to preclude the Republicans from being able to ask questions. And listen, the people who hate the president can say, well, If what happened is true, it doesn't matter. No, I I think it does matter. I think it matters because it shows states of mind in both directions. And I think it is exculpatory into the character of the initiation of the investigation, to the character of the whistleblower, that he essentially started throwing spaghetti noodles at the wall to see which ones would stick. And he certainly found something. He, he found people who complained to him. But how much did he do to try to draw out the complaints? And how long did he work with Adam Schiff? How long did he work with Democrats to build the case? Because it seems pretty clear now the way that Nancy Pelosi shifted the investigation from uh, we're not doing impeachment to this is an impeachment inquiry. We're not having a vote. Something had to have happened beyond just the the initial whisper campaign there had to be a plan set in motion and this guy appears to have played a part in that plan it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes down on the democratic side as they try to block republicans from uh bringing the whistleblower forward and i think that that hurts the democrats i think when republicans go out to the cameras and say the democrats are protecting the person who started this they won't let us talk to the person who started this. The The inspector general says that this person has firsthand knowledge. I think that hurts the Democrats. It gives the Republicans a way out on this. Now, why are the Democrats doing this? You know, I, I've gotten a number of emails. In fact, on my other show, I had people call in and say, well, exactly what, what, what is going on here? There's no crime. There, there's no uh, statutory crime that anyone is accusing the president of violating. The Constitution says high crimes and misdemeanors. Why are we at an impeachment? Well, one, the Democrats have been wanting to do this forever. I mean, the Democrats have been wanting to do this since before Donald Trump got elected. Remember, Susan Rice drafted anti-Trump talking points. There are allegations out there that the whistleblower is someone who helped her with those talking points. There was an effort to undermine the Electoral College. There have been all sorts of issues out there related to this stuff. The Democrats have wanted to do it for a while. On this particular issue, though, on this particular issue, when Richard Nixon uh, and Watergate happened years ago, the very first article of impeachment against Richard Nixon, Nixon was his abuse of power. It was not a statutory crime Nixon violated by asking the FBI to investigate political opponents. Instead, 
the Congress decided, the House of Representatives decided in their articles of impeachment, it was an abuse of office to use his power to get an investigation against his political opponents. And that's what Donald Trump is accused of doing, is using his political power to get a foreign government to investigate a political opponent, very much like Nixon in that regard. Now, whether or not they're similar, that's what the House wants to look into. There's a, there's a larger issue here, though, and that is, do you want a president of a party you disagree with to use the powers of his presidency to investigate a political opponent? And this is something I think Democrats miss. This, kind of, this is underlying the whole issue. There are a lot of Republicans who have good reason to believe that the Democrats did just that. That the Hillary Clinton campaign and outside groups opposed to Donald Trump began the creation of the Steele dossier, and that Steele dossier relied on foreign intelligence, among other things. A lot of it deeply flawed, a lot of it wrong. And they took that information into the federal government, and the federal government began investigating the Trump campaign. They believe, the the Trump supporters believe, and they have reason to believe, credible reason to believe, that a lot of the initial FBI work into the Trump administration came from the Steele dossier, which we know from the Mueller report was bogus, and that's why they're going back and investigating. And the fact that the Democrats are screaming about it, to, to I mean, screaming bloody murder, that they would have the audacity to look into the creation of the Steele dossier, and was the government involved, and was the media involved? kind of is a big red flag that, in fact, yeah, there might have been a there there. If the Democrats were smart, and I know I'm asking a lot in that, if the Democrats were smart, they would allow the president and through John Durham to go investigate this and just shut up about it. Let John Durham go and find what he can find. Let John Durham go and see what he can see. Let John Durham, he's the U.S. attorney for Connecticut who's investigating the origins of the uh, Russia and Trump are colluding allegations that the Democrats and the media have both pushed that have been thoroughly discredited by Bob Mueller. Let him go see where that started and shut up about it. Because what they're doing is they're playing into a conspiracy theory that's developing on the right that they're trying to block exculpatory evidence of the president now because a lot of the investigation actually came from Ukraine to help Democrats. If you will recall, there were a lot of Ukrainians who wanted Hillary Clinton to win because they thought she would stand strong with them against Russia and they weren't sure about the untested Donald Trump. That's where this conspiracy. Now, uh, full disclosure, I don't really buy it. Um, I, I really don't. I will be surprised if John Durham comes out with a lengthy list of of indictments. Um, I will be surprised if there's a there there. But I've got friends of mine who swear there's a there there. They are convinced of it. And I say, let them scratch the itch. Let them see what's there. What is the harm in letting them see what's there? To the extent the Democrats say there is harm, they, they say, oh, well, it's just going to allow people to, to, to call into question our existing investigation. So that's called exculpatory. Let, let them find information to undermine your existing investigation. Let them find information that could call into question what you're doing right now. Let them find information that shows, and this is the key, let them find information that shows the president had a rational, reasonable, ba reasonable basis to try to find information about what Ukraine did or did not do to Burisma and Joe Biden because of 2016, not because of 2020. There may be no there there. It looks like the president wanted Joe Biden investigated because of 2020. And there is a solid historic precedent for that being impeachable. 
but maybe he did have valid reasons to look backwards and to think that uh, he needed to look back at Joe Biden in 2016 because was it Joe Biden and the Obama administration laying the landmines to undermine the Trump presidency then? I mean, it seems very clear there are people holdovers from the Obama administration in Washington right now who are doing their best to undermine the Trump administration at every chance to stop the Trump administration from being able to roll back the Obama agenda. They're setting a really good precedent that when you become president of the United States from an opposite party, you've got to purge everyone from the prior administration. The president should have done that. They're probably going to do it if he gets a second second chance, if he gets reelected. I mean, it, the extent to which the Obama administration officials still in government and the bureaucrats who help them still in government are trying to take out this administration is actually pretty appalling. And the media and the Democrats want to give those people a pass. And that's what the president is investigating. Has there been a concerted effort the entire time? Has there been an organized effort the entire time to undermine him? You may think there's not. You may think this is nonsense. But what's the harm in letting the man look? Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-973-7425. 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. I know you probably don't want to at this time of the morning, but we do need to actually hear from Adam Schiff. Well, look, uh, you know, there are certainly some of the members. um, I have very little hope that they will approach the process seriously, that they will do their duty in terms of being an objective fact finder. Um, But as you know, Chris, this is not something that I was eager to undertake. For months and months, uh, I resisted uh, the call for impeachment and spoke out about it and, and you know, frankly, took a lot of flack from uh, some of my uh, supporters for not uh, supporting impeachment because I thought this should be an extraordinary remedy. It's not something we should rush to embrace. But I'll tell you what changed for me was when we learned that, you know, having solicited Russian help during his first election, having obstructed the investigation into that misconduct, while president, and then on the very day after Bob Mueller testifies about all of this, the president is back at it again on the phone with President Zelensky, asking him to do these, these political favors and doing so in the context of Zelensky saying, we are ready to buy more javelins to protect against the Russians. That said to me, Chris, this is a president who feels he is above the law, that there is no accountability. Uh, and frankly, I think there's little more dangerous to America than an unethical president who believes he is above the law. Here's the problem with what Schiff is saying. He's been saying that since Donald Trump got elected. It's a little rich for him to say I opposed impeachment the whole time when when every single thing else that he's saying that this president acts like he's above the law, he's deeply corrupt, he he all these side deals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Adam Schiff's been saying that since the day, actually the day before Donald Trump got elected. So for him to say, well, I imposed impeachment the whole time, but oh, look at this evidence that now the president might be corrupt and using his office for gain. This is the same damn thing he's been saying since before the president got elected. If, if that's the case, if, if that's actually it, then all of this is a show. And that's where the Republicans are going to go. I, I actually think we owe it to the Constitution. And I know this is going to make some of you mad. Um, and I don't like to be on the wrong side of my audience. But 
I think that the Constitution requires that the impeachment process having begun, uh, we owe it to the Constitution to, to treat the process respectfully. But at the same time, I got a hard time thinking the Democrats actually are going to treat it respectfully. I mean, given what they're doing, listen, uh, with Nixon and with Clinton, the president's counsel was allowed to sit in the room and ask questions of the witnesses in the House, not even in the Senate. And the House Democrats don't want to give this president that right. There is a procedural fairness at play, even if the procedural argument kind of overshadows or is overshadowed by the actual events and allegations. There's still a fairness involved. You know, this is just interesting, random non-impeachment story. Um, archaeologists uh, led by a Dr. Scott Stripling think they may have discovered the altar on which the uh, Ark of the Covenant stood. Uh, there, there was a, in First Kings two twenty eight. Um, it says when news reached Joab, who had conspired with Adonijah to, though not with Absalom, he fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. Um, the altar was then in uh, Shiloh. They've been excavating a field in what would have been ancient Silo. Shiloh have discovered a temple. And there they discovered an altar with horns, um, and it kind of matches where the layout of, of everything said. The other thing they uncovered was a pomegranate. Uh, now, it, it's a, um, a fake pomegranate. It's a bejeweled pomegranate. And we know that the robes of the priests who would go into the uh, area of the altar wore pomegranates on the robes. That's referenced in the Bible. And they have found those, uh, Exodus 23:33 make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe with gold bells between them. And they found those things. So they're wondering if they found uh, where the ark once uh, sat. Um, interesting how this stuff lines up. It reminds me of a story a couple of years ago. They found uh, broken altars inside the wall of a, I forget exactly which city, maybe it was Bethel, and uh, they found a uh, a little clay ta- stone tablet carved in that on orders of Hezekiah, and you will recall that in the Bible Hezekiah turned the altars into the restroom, into the bathroom uh, there in the in the uh, wall of the city, and they believe they found this. It's just it's funny how all these things just line up over time. Let's go to the phones. Uh, is it uh, Jeanette in Kansas? Yeah, let's see. Can I fire up the phone line here? Well, I'm having issues now. Are you there? Nope. Sorry, folks. I'm having issues with the call screening program all of a sudden. Um, we will we'll see if we can figure this out. Uh, stick around, be patient, and we'll see if I can figure out what's going on with phones. Uh, the phone number here, if you want to call in, dare take a chance, 877-973-7425, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I need to play you this audio from David Shalane, uh, CNN. He is the political director for CNN, and he makes a, a pretty good point, I think, uh, about where the problems are with the Democrats right now when it comes to uh, putting themselves on the wrong side of their constituents. 
Yeah, it's a good question, Brooke. I, last night I attended a, a house party that Kamala Harris was having in Newton, Iowa, and by far her biggest applause lines in the, in the living room in this house, uh, the stuff that excited these Democrats the most was when she said the lines about getting rid of Donald Trump, saying thank you and goodbye uh, to him. That gets the biggest applause. That's the Democratic faithful, just like you saw in Miguel's piece there in Pennsylvania. What I think is uh, important to remember as we're looking at sort of the politics of impeachment is when you look at those national polls, Brooke, that show you a majority uh, may want to impeach and remove Donald Trump from office, when you look across some of the critical battleground states, uh, those numbers are reversed. The majority uh, do not want to uh, impeach and remove Donald Trump from office. And this plays out district by district, which is why some of those Democratic members of the House, the majority makers who come from districts Donald Trump won in 2019, they voted with Nancy Pelosi uh, on this today uh, for the most part. And Republicans are pouncing to try to hang that vote around their neck because in their districts back home where Donald Trump won, this idea of impeaching and removing him is not a popular one. Exactly. Uh, polling nationwide shows that the nation is split 50-50 on impeaching the president. Uh, but if you go into the swing districts, so take Lucy McBath's district here in Georgia, uh, overwhelmingly voters in these swing districts, they don't support impeachment. They want to deal with it at the ballot box. Maybe it's some voters, they want to take it out on the president. They want to vote against him. They want the opportunity to reject him. But overwhelmingly, it's those voters in those districts that they think this is nonsense. It's a political issue here. Uh, there, there's no there there for impeachment. We're not in a situation. Listen, the polling can be skewed because so many people in uh, in in California and New York and Chicago and in progressive enclaves who get in the polling they skew the deck uh, but you go look at the di swing districts look at the swing states look at the polling in those states exclude the big urban areas that are anti-trump and were anti-trump in 2016 look at the swing districts and what you have are people who do not want impeachment you got Colin Peterson, a, a Democrat in uh, Minnesota, voted against impeachment. His district overwhelmingly went for Donald Trump. Um, these people, they don't want impeachment. And I think that matters greatly when the Democrats go to the polls next year. This could impact them. Let's try this again. Uh, Janet in Kansas, you there? I am. And it, it's Jeanette, Eric. Jeanette. Well, welcome. Yeah. Welcome. Thank you very much. Sure. What do you think about impeachment? Um, I'm definitely not for it. I'm a Trump supporter, have been from the day he first day he threw that in the ring, and even before that when he was thinking about it. Um, so you're it, one of the actual, like, the real early Trump supporters before he got the nomination. Yes. Okay. Yes. I, you know, I was getting I was getting harangued and ridiculed and, and you know, it, that kind of thing, when I would talk about it, this is the best person that's going to, you know, that needs to run. He's run a business successfully. We don't need another politician. You know, let him come in here and straighten these, you know, everything out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was just ha, 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 ha. But at the same time, you know, he was making headway and building up steam. And, and this whole impeachment thing is nothing but them, the uh, Democrats pitching a hissy fit because they didn't win in 2016. You know, and they're trying to do everything they possibly can to keep him from being able to run in 2020. They, yes, and, they absolutely are. And, and there's nothing fair about it. You know, I'm old enough that I 
uh, was in college when Nixon was impeached. I sat and watched the whole Clinton uh, uh, impeachment hearings. And this is a total sham, what they're doing. It has nothing to do with whether or not he's guilty of anything. All it has to do with is them trying to show how big and how bad they are. And they're not anything. The door's fixing to open and the poop is fixing to hit the fan. And they're going to wish they had lifeboats. <laughs> well, you know, so thank you very much for that call. I appreciate it, Jeanette. Uh, Jeanette from Kansas calling. Thank you. Uh, 877-973-7425 if you want to call in. This goes back to, to Chelaine's comment on CNN. In the swing districts, in these areas around the country, people do not support impeachment. You've got, uh, I think it was uh, 14 Democrats who voted for impeachment came from districts that went for Donald Trump by double digits. One of the things that I think Democrats forget is that when impeachment or when 2018 happened, And they took back Congress. Democrats showed up at presidential levels. Republicans showed up at midterm levels. Republicans tend to turn out at a high rate during uh, the off year, during the presidential elections and at a lower rate during midterms. And Democrats tend to do the same, except both parties behave as if it's a presidential election when their party does not control the White House. So Democrats don't control the White House, so they turned out at a presidential level in 2018. Republicans, they did control the White House. They didn't see a need. This is very similar to when Barack Obama was president and Republicans would turn out in high numbers and Democrats would not during the off-year elections. Because when it's an off-year election, you're like, we got the White House. It's okay if they take back Congress. Well, Donald Trump tried to tell everyone this would happen. And see, that's the other thing here. And I think that has soaked into the consciousness of if only a lot of Donald Trump supporters. Oh, hush, Siri. Um, if only in Donald Trump supporters and not nationwide. But I think it, it, even with independent voters, it's in their mind that Republicans, what was their message in 2018? If you put the Democrats in charge. The Democrats will impeach the president. If you put the Democrats in charge, that's all they're going to do. And now it turns out it's true. Now it turns out that's what's happening. Uh, And the hysteria from the Democrats reinforces this. You want to listen to some hysteria here. MSNBC is right with hysteria. If the president is found not guilty, if they impeach the president and the Senate doesn't convict the president, you will want to watch MSNBC on the day of that vote because heads will explode. I want to play you some of the hysteria. This is Steve Schmidt. Now, I need to pause for a moment on Steve Schmidt. Steve Schmidt worked for John McCain. And it is now abundantly obvious that Steve Schmidt would have given John McCain terrible advice if John McCain had gotten elected in 2008. Steve Schmidt has lost his mind. He hasn't liked Republicans in a long time. And uh, he's now completely lost his mind on Donald Trump. Listen to this. This country is is not built on a cult of personality. When a member of Congress is sworn in. They don't swear an oath to the head of the Republican Party or to Donald Trump. When a military officer takes their commission, they swear to defend the Constitution of the United States. And that's what the question is. And so 
what hangs over this is the larger point. If this doesn't meet the standard, what possibly could? Or do you believe, which is a profound departure from the history of the country, the president can do whatever he or she likes to do? And if the answer to that question is in the affirmative, we don't live in the American Republic that existed from 1787 until 2017. It's a different type of country. And that's why this is such a grave day. Because the question that's coming is one of the most important questions that the country has ever faced. Y'all, we don't live in the same country the founders required because, in large part, the the founders didn't have a Supreme Court that run roughshod, ran roughshod over everyone. It's funny to me that every time things don't go the way the left wants them to go, they say, we don't live in the country of the founders. Well, you don't like the country of the founders anyway. This hysteria that the republic is over if the Democrats don't get their way, and that, that's essentially what all these arguments boil down to. The republic is over if the Democrats don't get their way. Uh, they are essentially amplifying the partisanship of impeachment, which, by the way, there was bipartisan opposition to impeachment. There wasn't bipartisan support for impeachment. Mark in Dalton, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm fine. You? Great. Well, I wanted to say that I entirely agree with that. You know, the Democrats ran their train through a huge roadblock yesterday uh, when they voted, uh, when they decided to proceed with an entirely partisan impeachment. Mm-hmm. Impeachment was never meant to be, in my opinion, a political tool to simply damage your political opponent. If you can't muster bipartisan support for an impeachment, then you need to stop it right there in its tracks. And and because the country is telling you that beyond this point, you're entering into an area of total chaos and disruption uh, of the American way. I mean, it just doesn't make any right. sense. Well, you know, even Nixon, the Republicans had to go to the White House and tell Nixon, hey, you got enough Republicans to vote against you that you need to leave. With Bill Clinton, you had, I think, 34 Democrats joined the Republicans and said, hey, uh, we, we, you're going to be impeached. Um, now, he wound up not getting convicted in the Senate, but there was a bipartisan group to impeach him. Uh, you're absolutely right on that, Mark. And I think the Democrats, essentially the message to the Democrats is let the voters decide. Let the voters decide if you can't get bipartisan consensus. And guys like Steve Schmidt can say, well, that just means we're, we're never going to be able to impeach the president. No, there's a fundamental difference a fundamental difference between impeaching the president uh, less than a year before the election and three years before the election, even two years before the election. You are less than a year now by the time this impeachment trial goes forward. Monday marks the one-year anniversary or the one-year countdown. There will be 365 days to the election. 366, actually. We'll be in a leap year next year. 366 days. We'll be, it'll be the one-year countdown. November 4th, 2020. On Monday is November 4th, 2019. November 4th, 2020 will be election day. They will not have a trial in the Senate until January. So let the voters decide. That, that is a compelling argument, I think, for the Republicans. But it's got to be more than that. 
because I, I think it, it undermines the Republicans if they say, uh, yeah, this is totally impeachable and the president should go to jail for it. But, hey, let's let the voters decide. No, why aren't you? You were sworn to uphold, protect and defend the Constitution, not the president. So there's got to be a little more there there. Um, I do think as much as the media mocks it, as much as the Democrats mock it, I do think there's an argument there for the Republicans to, to make to say, look, this isn't a good thing. This is bad. But this doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. If anything, the president's advisor stopped him. That's something we've seen time and time again, that the president did want to do things he shouldn't have done, whether it was obstructing the Mueller probe, firing Mueller or whatnot. Uh, and it, it, he was stopped by his staff from doing that. And that becomes a political argument in 2020. Time and time again, the president was stopped by his staff. He's now subject to no reelection. Uh, he's not held accountable to the voters again. It's time to impeach. And in fact, there's something to be said on the issue of um, on the issue of Nixon and of Bill Clinton. That he was in a second term. He could in both cases, he couldn't be held accountable to the voters. It was up to Congress to decide because the voters couldn't decide. They've got arguments to make. You know, the, the most frustrating thing here, honestly, with the Republican side is how bad their arguments are right now. You would think that their arguments actually that they have no good arguments and there are plenty of arguments out there. I'm making arguments for the Republicans that they aren't capable of making for themselves. And I'm not sure why they're not making them for themselves. I, I think it's a legitimate thing to say that with Richard Nixon and with Bill Clinton, they were in their second terms there and they had several years to go. Um, they had just started their second terms. And so we needed to impeach because they, one, wouldn't be held accountable to the voters again. And two, even if they could be held accountable to the voters again, there were several years left of this behavior. With Donald Trump, we are 365, 366 days from the election. By the time we get to the Senate with a trial, it'll be January. There will be less than 11 months. Let the voters decide. They, they've got arguments here. They're just not making them. And it makes me wonder what they're nervous of. Um, is it that they're nervous that there is a there there? Um, I, by the way, I did not send out the recipe yesterday. I, I got tied up. Y'all, these last couple of days, so I'm leaving town tonight. Um, in, in fact, I won't be here on Monday. Uh, I think Alan Sanders is filling in for me on Monday. Thank you to him. Um, I, I So... I've been so busy. I, I literally have been on the phone. I get off the air at noon and I'm on the phone until four. My other show starts. I'm on the show until six and then I'm on the phone again. Last night I sat on the porch and handing out candy and, and, and having to wrap up calls just to get out of town. Uh, but I will send the recipe out today. Sweet potato pie. Uh, you will want to text the word recipe to 33777 to get it and just get on the list because I'm going to start sending out holiday recipes, breakfast recipes, things to make for your family during the holiday season as you got large groups of people in the house, stuff like that. Uh, text recipe to 33777. This is very cute. Let me just play the audio and then I'll explain what's going on here. Are you mean? Are you mean for Halloween? Yeah. That's my last name. That's my baseball number. You want to take a picture? Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> That's Freddie Freeman. Uh, his wife, Chelsea Freeman, uh, put this up on Twitter. Um, Freddie Freeman trick-or-treating in his neighborhood. A uh, little boy is trick-or-treating dressed as Freddie Freeman. Freeman sees him, goes up to him and says, let's take a picture together. That's, that's me. <laughs> and you can just see the kid is just like, oh my gosh, this is actually him. <laughs> the, the kid's eyes are, I mean, they're as big as saucers. That's 
very, very sweet. You know, it, it's striking. The, the buddy of mine who pointed it out to me on, on Twitter and noting that it, 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 the interactions that you see regularly among baseball stars and kids is one reason that there is so much affinity for a game that, frankly, could be kind of boring. But the interactions, particularly because so many of the stars of baseball got started in minor leagues like the the Braves up in Rome, used to be the Macon Braves, now the Rome Braves, um, uh, and uh, what is it, in Gwinnett County, and uh, what was the, I can't remember, I'm sorry. Uh, and then you've got the, now we've got the Macon Bacon. We, we the, Yes, the, the name of the baseball team in Macon is the Macon Bacon. There's the Savannah Bananas. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm opposed to the QC names, but the fans love it. The fans love this stuff. And um, they, uh, they go to the games. They build relationships with the... Um, with the fans, they build relationships. The fans build relationships with the players, and people genuinely love them. It is a major interaction, and they um, they build long term relationships. They build long term fan bases, and as a result, uh, they can weather storms. But those players. When they're in the minor leagues, they're deeply interactive with the kids who come. I've got a friend of mine uh, who loves baseball, and his son loves baseball. His son is my son's age, 10, 10 years old, and they go to games up in D.C. to the minor league teams, and the players love his son. They give him balls and caps, and now the kid wants to play baseball. It's a really big deal to the kid and a big deal to the players that fans come out and root for him when they're not the World Series championship teams now, they're not the major leagues, but they will be. We'll be back. Well, there's some breaking news here we need to cover for those of you here in Georgia. Uh, State Representative David Clark has lost his chairmanship uh, and his vice chairmanship. Uh, he was the, the chairman, I think, of one of the, the governmental oversight committees in the House, a vice chair of the Appropriations Committee. David Ralston has thrown him off uh, because David Clark has said that uh, it's time for Ralston to step down due to scandal. Uh, so payback for taking a stand against Ralston's corruption. David Clark uh, has been stripped of his committee chairmanships, uh, which I think everyone expected that was coming. But it, it shows you that the speaker is willing to be ruthless and those who are going after him are going to have to continue the call. Uh, there's a lot of fear in the state house over standing up to Ralston and and they're going to have to stand up to him with this corruption scandal uh, so that he's not a liability in November of next year. There's another big story out. Uh, the Georgia Supreme Court has thrown out the lawsuit uh, against Jeff Duncan. By the way, in the third hour, Jeff Duncan, if you weren't here uh, yesterday, I interviewed Jeff Duncan, and I want to replay some of our interview in case you missed it. I'll do that, though, at the in the third hour. Um, but Jeff Duncan is in a, was in a lawsuit uh, because uh, Sarah Riggs Amico, who's now running for the U.S. Senate, she filed a lawsuit over the 2018 election. Believe it or not, the 2018 election has been uh, contested since the day of the, of the election by Sarah Riggs Amico. And the reason is because 127,000 or so people did not vote in the lieutenant governor's race. 
and there was a uh, drop-off in a number of counties and a number of precincts, and it was consistent in those particular precincts where people did not vote. And the uh, Riggs Amico campaign alleged that it was the voting machines were at fault. Now, the Supreme Court, by the way, the decision was unanimous, um, and the Georgia Supreme Court is not a bunch of Republicans. It, it, it is a pretty diverse group still. Uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of people who have been there for a while, and uh, they, on a um, unanimous basis, have thrown out the suit. I'm, I'm trying to pull up this article to get the precise number for you. Yeah, 127,000, that's it. Uh the, the the plaintiff in the case, it was essentially Sarah Riggs Amico, uh, her campaign, alleged there were 127,000 fewer votes than expected compared with previous elections, a larger disparity than the 123,172 vote margin of victory by Jeff Duncan and Sarah Riggs Amico, a, a party contesting an election. The Supreme Court said uh, needs to offer evidence, not theories or conjecture that places doubt in the result of the election. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background here. This is actually a fun story. This really is a fun story. I, I love this. Um, so when I was in law school, I wanted to do election law and I knew I wanted to do election law and election law because I, I was in politics. I was running campaigns. I loved it. And when I got out of law school, my very first case, and unfortunately I hadn't gotten my bar results yet. I passed first time. Um, but the case started uh, a couple of weeks before I got the results or no, no, no. I take that back. I had gotten the results. I had passed the exam, but I had not yet been made officially a member of the bar. It would come the next week. So I, I couldn't actually be the lead on the case. I so wanted to be the lead on the case. Um, but I had to sit there and essentially direct my two bosses at my law firm in the case. The case was in Taylor County, Georgia in Butler. Taylor County is a, is a um, poor county. It's not uh, highly populated. It's got the greatest gun store in North America in Taylor County in Butler, uh, Barrow. Uh, go to the Napa Auto Park store in Butler, Georgia, and go to the back. It is the greatest gun store you will ever find. It, it, Barrow Automotive and, and Barrow Gun, it's just, it's incredible, mind-blowing. I love going down there. It's about an hour from my house. But in Taylor County, the clerk of court lost by, I want to say it was 16 or 19 votes. And he contested the election, claimed there was, was all sorts of voter regularity, and that's why he lost. And, and the clerk of court in Taylor County is a big deal. And he had been the clerk of court for uh, something like uh, 12 years. He was widely known, and he lost by 16 to 19 votes. Um, by someone who had worked with him in the clerk's office. So he hires a lawyer from Columbus to come over and, and challenge the election. And my law firm got hired by the local board of elections and the secretary of state's office to defend the election. And I knew the law on this. And it was very clear that I was the only person in the room. And I, and I don't say this arrogantly. I, I was fresh out of law school, but this was what I wanted to do for a living. This is the stuff I had studied. And it was very clear to me that no one else in the room, including the judge, actually understood election law. And election law is a very obscure case law in Georgia. Uh, there aren't a ton of cases on it. Uh, and a lot of the, the, we don't have a lot of election challenges in Georgia. It's not widely understood. And there are only a handful of people in the state who regularly specialize in election law. And I knew, so th there had been 
I, now I'm gonna I'm gonna do the numbers uh, accurately here if I can. Uh, there were ten thousand people who voted. Let's just say. Now let's do it easier. There were a thousand people who voted, and only eight hundred people voted in the uh, in the clerk of courts election. So under Georgia law, there's a mathematical formula you have to use. Uh, you've got to take the total number of people who voted in the election, which in this case we'll say is a thousand. You've got to subtract from it the total number of people who voted in that particular election. And, and the reason being is because uh, there are people who will not vote in the election at all. Uh, like take, for example, even in, in the Brian Kemp, uh, Stacey Abrams race, more people voted in Georgia in 2018 than cast votes in the governor's race. There are some people who are just like, I'm not, I hate both of them. I'm not voting for them or look at, uh, Donald Trump's race in, in 2016 in Georgia against Hillary Clinton. There were more people who voted overall in the election. Johnny Isaacson got more votes. Uh, in Georgia in 2016 on the ballot than Donald Trump did or Hillary Clinton did. More votes were cast in the U.S. Senate race than the presidential race in 2016. Um, so you got to take how many people actually voted in the election. Let's say it was 1,000. But only 800 voted in the clerk of courts race. And he lost, this guy in Taylor County lost by, let's say it was 16 votes. So the difference in the number of people who voted in that race plus the, the total outcome was, was 200 because it's 1,000 minus 800. So it was 200 people. And then what was the difference? What, what was the difference? There were 16-vote margin between the winner and the loser. So it's 200 plus 16 people. Now, why? Because you cannot presume that everyone voted in that race. So you gotta you gotta see how what the difference is between the total number of voters votes cast and that race, and you cannot presume and you cannot inquire. And this is the big issue: you're not allowed to ask how someone voted. You can't ask how anyone voted. So you've got to, for the mathematical formula, you can't just show that 16 people messed up. You got to show 16 people plus an additional 200 messed up. And that would be what affected the outcome of the election. The only way around that is if you can find 16 people who affirmatively are willing to say that they, they voted for that person and their ballot was rejected. If you can find specifically 16 people whose absentee ballots were rejected for no good reason in that race, well, then you've got a plausible claim. But if you can't, you got to use this math mathematical formula. And nobody in the room understood that. And so this lawyer decides he can bring up just 16 people who tried to vote in the election and had problems. And one guy came up, I'll never forget this, y'all. This guy comes up on, on, uh, into the witness stand and he has told the lawyer that he was intimidated. And the lawyer starts asking him and he says, were you intimidated? Yes, I was intimidated. Um, who intimidated you? Well, nobody intimidated me. But you were intimidated about voting. No, I wasn't intimidated about voting. Well, you were intimidated about what? I was intimidated about coming to court. That's what the guy says. I was intimidated about coming to court. It had nothing to do with my vote. I was intimidated about coming to court. Well, who intimidated you? Well, nobody intimidated me. And it went on and on and on like this. And finally, the judge slams the gavel and he says, close courtroom, everybody out of here except the lawyers and the witness. Everybody leaves the courtroom. 
The judge turns to the witness. He says, sir, I want a name. You have said on this stand that you have been intimidated about coming into my courtroom to testify in this election. I want to know the name of the person who intimidated you and did not testify. And the guy says, no, your honor, I was scared. I was intimidated. I didn't want to come to no courtroom. <laughs> and so we open back up. So then, <laughs> so then the guy he, he wants he, he, the, the poor lawyer. He's got an absentee ballot from someone he wants to challenge in the court. So so now one of his witnesses is gone. So he's already below the 16th threshold. Uh, so he brings in this woman. And the, the, this is a scene. Of, you remember the scene from My Cousin Vinny? Have you ever seen My Cousin Vinny? And, and the woman puts on the Coke bottle side glasses and her eyes get big as saucers behind the glasses. That is exactly what happens here. It is a poor elderly black lady who sits down and the lawyer hands her a ballot and says, ma'am, do you recognize this ballot? And she puts her glasses on and her eyes become big. And she says, well, that's my brother. And he says, ma'am, is that his signature? And she says, that's his signature. And he shows her a, the voter registration card of her brother and the signature. I mean, it took no rocket scientist to be able to show you that the the ballot signature looked like a woman had signed it and the registration card from like 40 years before looked like a man had signed it. And he says, whose signature is that? Well, that's my brother. She says, can you tell me, does that signature look like this signature? No, it does not. He says, do you believe that your brother signed the voter registration card? Do you recognize that to be the signature he historically used? Yes, it was. Can you tell me that your brother signed the voter registration card? She says, I, I, he did not. He says, are you sure he did not? She says, I'm sure he did not. I signed his voter registration card or his, his absentee ballot. And I mean, you could just tell this lawyer is ready, ready to send this 70-year-old woman to jail. And he says, read the fine print. And she gets it right up to her face and her eyes squint. And she says the, the, the signature of the person who, or the person who helped this person fill out this absentee ballot must also sign the ballot testing that this person needed help. I said, did you do that? No, I did not do that. But you, you filled this out for your brother. She said, well, he told me who to vote for. Her brother had died before the trial. You should understand left that point out. And the guy says, so you signed your brother's ballot and your brother's not here to tell anyone that, that you helped him. You just want us to believe that you helped him. She says, I did. And, and the law, the poor judge interjects with this poor little old woman who looks like she's about to be carted off to jail by this lawyer for ballot fraud. And he says, why did you sign for your brother? She says, your honor, he got both arms ripped off in a cotton gin. I mean, I don't mean to laugh about that, but I mean, it's just the look on this poor lawyer's face. He was devastated. I mean, everybody in the courtroom, you could just hear her start, start giggling that uh, he didn't bother to do. Now, now this trial, it was rushed and election challenges are you rush them very quickly. You got to preserve evidence. Uh, you, you want the election to be challenged and, and reversed as quickly as possible. Uh, and, and you want it done quickly. There's a limited amount of time to file a suit. And so he did. And he didn't have time clearly to interview any of the witnesses. Well, he got through these 16 people. He clearly hadn't challenged enough. And then I, the, my, the lawyers, the firm, let me stand up and explain to the courtroom that your honor, here's this case. This case sets forth the mathematical formula. You got to take the number of people who voted in the election overall, subtract the number of people who voted in this, that gives you the difference of voters. And then you got to add the margin 
margin between this candidate and that candidate. So he needed 216, not 16, and he didn't even get to 16, so he hasn't proven his case. And uh, done. I mean, it, it was over and done. And, and the look on the lawyer's face that he had never even thought about that mathematical formula, nor had the judge. I showed the judge the case. I had it with me. I had all the research to show it was still binding law in Georgia. The case got thrown out. This is essentially uh, what Sarah Riggs Amico tried to do. That was a long way of getting back to the main point here, wasn't it? Um, Sarah Riggs Amico went in and said, listen, um, there was 123,172 vote margin between Jeff Duncan and Sarah Riggs Amico. Normally, there are 127,000 extra votes in this. In fact, if you look at Brian Kemp's race and you look at uh, Brad Raffensperger's race and, and all that, there were 127,000 more votes cast in this. So it must be that one of the electronic voting machines or several of the electronic voting machines malfunctioned. Well, do you have the machines that malfunction? No. Have you looked for the machines that malfunctioned? Yes. Have you been able to find them? No. Have you been able to find people who claim they voted in your election but didn't? No. Uh, they, they had nothing. All they had was conjecture. They, they, they had a hypothesis that this had happened, but they couldn't find any of the machines that undercounted. They couldn't find anyone who claimed to have voted and swore their vote wasn't actually counted, and they couldn't find anyone who said they had electronic balloting. Well, I, I tell you the fact, they had a few. They didn't have 123,172. So the Supreme Court threw it off. Now, here's the thing. There were 80,000 fewer votes for lieutenant governor than the other. So it wasn't actually even 127,000 fewer votes. It was only 80,000 fewer votes between Brian Kemp's race and uh, Jeff uh, Jeff Duncan's race. And what you actually saw was there was a fall off. You'd have a, a big vote for Brian Kemp and an 80,000 vote drop for Jeff Duncan and then an 80,000 vote gain for Brad Raffensperger. And so it did actually look to people like, yeah, something must have gone on. 80,000 people were skipping. There, There's a there there. But they couldn't prove it. They had no evidence. It could actually be that people didn't want to vote in that race. It could be, as as the, the Duncan campaign argued, that there were a lot of people who thought that uh, Sarah Riggs Amico and Stacey Abrams were running as a ticket. And so you vote for Abrams, you're voting for uh, Riggs Amico. And so they, they skipped over that race. It could have been ballot design in some counties, the way it appeared on the screen that people just ignored. That's not the machine's fault. That's not the Board of Elections' fault. That's the voters' fault. There's no reason to blame a conspiracy when there could be something else. And the Supreme Court said, again, this is the Supreme Court ruling today, a party contesting an election must offer evidence, not theories or conjecture, that places in doubt the results of the election. It was an eight to zero decision, eight to zero against Sarah Riggs Amico. Can you believe she's been contesting this the entire time? The lieutenant governor is about to have a second legislative session. He's been lieutenant governor for a year, and Riggs Amico was continuing to fight this case, and now she wants to run for the Senate? No. No. Think of all the money taxpayers had to spend on this, on conjecture. You're going to want the pumpkin or the, the sweet potato pie recipe. 
you are. Text recipe to 33777. You can call in here, 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. This hour is brought to you by Dynamic Money. Uh, Dynamic Money, I'm actually going to Las Vegas tonight uh, with Chris Burns of Dynamic Money. Uh, He is my wife's and my financial advisor. No, we're not going to gamble. Neither of us do. Uh, We're going to learn how to drive tanks and and shoot flamethrowers. Yeah, we actually are uh, going to learn how to use flamethrowers and and drive tanks uh, and ride in helicopters and blow stuff up Um, just because we want to. Um, But dynamic money uh, is it's financial. Think think like Dave Ramsey. And one of the things that Dave Ramsey always says is you don't want to go into financial planning with a bunch of people who are going to make commissions off of you because you don't know that you're going to get the uh, straight advice from them. They may be giving you advice that benefits them more than you. And that's why my wife and I use Chris as our financial planner because he's fees only, uh, not fees plus. Uh, Fees plus means you get fees and you get commissions. And someone can steer you into an annuity or a mutual fund or, or a life insurance policy where they get rich off of you. Uh, Chris just makes flat fees off of you. And if you choose to invest with him, which you don't have to, uh, they get uh, money management fees over time. Um, we're perfectly happy for him to invest. Straight shooter, honest guy, former youth pastor. I love him and his family. And uh, they've really helped us be able to restructure. I'm, I'm giving way more time to the sponsorship than I should, uh, but it's worth it. I, I really do very much value Chris's advice, uh, and I love now that he fills in for me here. Um, if you are interested, uh, go to dynamicmoney.com, and I thank them very, very much for their sponsorship. And I am going to try not to hit him accidentally with a rocket launcher or a flamethrower in Las Vegas this weekend. Um, uh, for those of you on hold, we, we got some stuff on hold. Um, just give me a, a moment and because we've only got about a minute, and I can't do justice to your phone call uh, in a minute and want to take it. Uh, something you should know regarding voting in Georgia is that they are rapidly trying to roll out these new voting machines that we will have in March. Uh, the presidential primary is going to be March 24th. And we will have to have 30,000 voting machines installed. There will have to be training. The group that's doing it is Dominion Voting Systems. They're out of Denver. And they got to hurry up and do it. The old machines are 17 years old. Uh, They're facing all sorts of technical problems. And now the new machines are scrambling with all sorts of problems as well. Uh, Part of the problem here is that Democrats are desperate to go back to paper ballots so they can start stuffing ballot boxes again. And uh, they're going to have to use the the machines. And they're screaming bloody murder that they're going to have to use these electronic machines uh, when, in fact, I think it's probably the best thing for us. But it's going to they've got three months, really, to roll these things out. um, And it's going to be a challenge, but I think they'll get it done. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, 877-973-7425. I'm going to go to Robert calling from Greensboro. Welcome. Good morning, Eric. Hi there. It's nice to listen to you. So I was calling in because of the discrepancy in the voting between governor and lieutenant governor's race. Mm -hmm. And what I found was challenging when I looked at the ballot that the governor's race was in the left-hand side. And then tucked in just under it was the lieutenant governor's race. I actually had to go back and look for it. Because once you went through the governor's race, you went on to the next column. And that's where I think the discrepancy in the vote. You, you know, it's, Robert, it's funny you should say this. This actually came up uh, in the arguments. It was the argument before the Supreme Court as well uh, from the Secretary of State's office. 
that depending on the county you were in, uh, they could have chosen to tuck the put the lieutenant governor's race under the governor's race. And so people might have either moved to the next column or what they think happened is uh, people testified about this, uh, that they presume because of ballot placement that it was a ticket, that if you voted for Brian Kemp, you didn't need to go down and vote for Jeff Duncan. If you voted for Stacey Abrams, you didn't need to go down and vote for Sarah Riggs Amico. And the the oh. argument that was expressed in court as well was that um, if that was the case, then statistically it would have impacted Republicans and Democrats alike. Um, and because there was no real evidence, there was speculation. There, there, there weren't a lot of people coming and saying, oh, I didn't realize I had to – it, it wasn't a ticket. I had to vote in both um, because it never has been a ticket. That They couldn't really count that in court. But it's funny you should say that because that actually did come up in court uh, from the Secretary of State's office. They were concerned about the ballot placement on the electronic screens. I think – and don't hold me to this – but I think that the new machines, each race will be on a different page. So, for example, you vote in the governor's race, and then the screen refreshes, and now it's lieutenant governor's race, and you vote there. I think that's one of the reasons they wanted to go with this. But um, funny you should say that. Now, what county did you vote in, Oconee? Oconee? That, no, that was no. No, I just moved here. I used to live in uh, Johns Creek. Oh, okay, so yeah. I was in Fulton County, so I can see where Fulton County might have tried to do that. Yeah, yeah, and, and you, you, you know, know I'm out here in Oconee County, yeah. I, I mean, and you're in County, God's country so. now, aren't you? I certainly am. I'm living it out here. Reynolds Plantation, building a house, and getting away from the city. Good for you. Well, listen, thanks very much for the phone call. I appreciate it very much. And Fulton County really was one of the places that had the had a lot of the complaints. Fulton and DeKalb, it was actually overwhelmingly, it was counties that were run by Democrats who had the problem. And the, the Riggs Amico campaign, they had to be careful how they did it because they did want to come across uh, sounding racist because that wasn't their intent. Uh, but they they wanted to try to make the case that it affected black communities or areas where there was a high population of black voters more than areas where there was a high population of white voters. What it ultimately came down to, I think, was in some cases there may have been some broken machines, except the problem was that uh, if the machines registered votes – so, for example, what Robert was saying – is that you know how the, the balloting works in Georgia. You go to the big screen, and you've got two columns. And on one column, you've got all the races that will fit. And then on the next column, you've got the others. And, and there may be some white space because they can't fit all the candidates, um, and they don't want to spill the ballot over into the second column. But in the governor's race, they didn't uh, spill over the columns. You had the governor's race, and right underneath it, you had the lieutenant governor's race on the screen. So you tap for the governor, and then you go down on the same column, and you tap for the lieutenant governor. And what Robert is saying, what what the Secretary of State's office speculated in is that people, they thought that the entire column were people running for governor. So they tapped for governor and then they went over into the next column was the Secretary of State's race and they tapped there. Their other speculation was that it could very well have been that there were some people who thought if you tap for governor, because Riggs and Miko and Abrams campaigned together, uh, and Jeff Duncan and Brian Kemp campaigned together, that if you voted for governor, you didn't need to vote for lieutenant governor because they were a ticket. Um, and there wasn't a lot of evidence. It was all speculation, but that was the problem with Riggs and Miko, is she could show that the counties where there were a lot of people who voted 
in the governor's race and didn't vote in the lieutenant governor's race and then voted in the secretary of state's race, those counties were predominantly Democrat. And the precincts where the undervote was significant were predominantly black. And they wanted to be very careful how they made the argument because they did not want to suggest that uh, people were stupid. But that was essentially what they were getting at. On the other side, uh, the Secretary of State's office, Jeff Duncan's campaign, they they wanted to be very careful how they made the air because we're dealing with 21st century wokeness and, and racial politics and whatnot, and no one meant anything bad by it. Uh, but did people not vote in that race because there wasn't a black person? I, I mean, you, you had Stacey Abrams uh, running for governor rallying black voters, and then you had Sarah Riggs Amico, who was a Mitt Romney supporter against Barack Obama. In the black community, Sarah Riggs Amico was not well thought of in certain segments of that community because she voted for Mitt Romney against Barack Obama. And so there was credible speculation there as well that she saw black voters in the, the very precincts that she says the vote dropped off are the precincts where it would have dropped off if voters in the Democratic pool of voters didn't like her because she supported Mitt Romney over Barack Obama. Now, she was still able to get the the nomination because she ran a strong campaign against someone who had no money. She outraised them. She outfunded them. She outworked them. She was able to get the Democratic nomination. But you get into the general election, you know, voters don't have to vote. They can show up. They can cast a vote in, in one race and go home. They don't have to vote in every race. And there may have been Democratic voters who didn't like her because she wasn't a uh, Barack Obama supporter. She was a Mitt Romney Republican. And that's, by the way, is, is she's running for the Senate now against David Perdue. And that's what Teresa Tomlinson, John Ossoff, and uh, Ted Terry are using against her, that she was a Republican. She says she left the Republican Party, or really the Republican Party left her. Uh, she's not suddenly a hyper-progressive Democrat. She's a, a uh, blue-collar, union-supported Democrat, and she liked Mitt Romney over Barack Obama. And that's going to come back to get her. It, it is going to come back to get her, uh, I suspect. Uh, they're, and her campaign also has the bankruptcy issue they got to deal with. Um, we need to move on from there, though. And the phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-973-7425, 877-973-7425. The governor is launching a health care reform proposal in Georgia. And um, he wants to expand Medicaid in the state. And now, time out. Let me let, and, and I got to be briefed on this. They're, they're actually they're texting me right now to see if I can talk to them this afternoon uh, about it. Let me explain this for you, because I know Republicans particularly get what this is a, a double edged sword. It's a catch 22. It's a damned if you do damned if you don't situation here, because the Democrats want the governor to do an unlimited Medicaid expansion in Georgia. They want full Obamacare in Georgia. And Governor Kemp says, no, it'll bankrupt the state. He does want to spend $300 million, though, to help poor people in Georgia on health care. And there's something he's going to do. And to, to understand this, I need to step back for a minute. And I need to talk to you about my buddy Jeff. My buddy Jeff uh, is a trainer. He, he fixes gym equipment. He's a cyclist. He is in super healthy, tip-top shape. 
and he is a uh, small business owner. He pays for his own health care insurance. And prior to Obamacare, he could get really great insurance for less than 100 bucks a month because he's super healthy. He goes to the doctor maybe once or twice a year. And after Obamacare, he wound up not having health care insurance for the first year because it was cheaper for him to pay the fine for not having insurance than it was to have insurance. And he would go to his doctor and he would pay cash. Well, you know, the the Obamacare fine would escalate every year, and it got to the point where it was cheaper for him to buy a uh, crummy plan for Obamacare than it was to pay the fine. So he did, and it was still more expensive than anything he had before Obamacare. And he got a, and I don't mean to disparage them, but it was a Blue Cross Blue Shield plan, and it was one of the, the Obamacare plans. Blue Cross Blue Shield offered better plans if you were in the private sector than if you were on the public option, which is what Obamacare is. And no doctor that he saw would take his plan. So he was having to pay for insurance and still pay out of pocket if he wanted to be seen. The only people who would take his plan were emergency rooms and hospitals. So if he wanted regular treatment that his insurance would cover, he would have to go to the emergency room, which was exactly the the opposite of what Obamacare intended. Obamacare intended to give everyone insurance to keep them out of emergency rooms. Well, now his insurance required him to go to the emergency room if he wanted to be seen, and it really made him mad. And he's still dealing with the issue. Part of the problem is the way the federal plans work. When Donald Trump became president, uh, led by Tom Price, the former Georgia congressman, former Health and Human Services Secretary now, uh, the way Obamacare, the, the Trump administration wants to get it to work is essentially to undermine it, to allow states to, instead of using the federal website and picking federal plans, to create plans in their state uh, that are broad and expansive without all of the the insurable requirements. So, for example, the, the federal plans, one of the reasons the federal plans are so expensive is that men uh, are required to pay for gynecology. They're never going to get pregnant, men. I'm not, I'm not down with the trans stuff. Men are never going to get pregnant, and they're probably never going to have breast cancer, but they were required to pay for uh, OBGYN services and uh, mammogram services. And they didn't like it. Uh, It it drives up costs. All of the things that the Obamacare plans required people to pay for that people would never use just drove up the costs. So the Trump administration has come in and said, you know what, let's get rid of all of that stuff. Let's let the states decide uh, what are the, the minimal requirements for insurability. Let them build their own websites and use their resources, and we will give them money to subsidize. Uh, so in Georgia, that's what Brian Kemp wants to do. He wants to go outside of the federal system, allow insurance companies to create plans for Georgians with minimal insurable coverage. You can pick uh, what you want covered. If you're a dude and you don't want to pay for mammograms and gynecology, you don't have to and lower it and it's they're going to limit it to people who are at the poverty line so people who have money and can afford private plans uh, can't apply but for the poor who cannot afford it they're going to give you a subsidized plan uh, with cost savings and all of the the outside consultants who have looked at this have said that georgia's plan not only will it actually keep costs down compared to other states but georgia intends to fund it with 300 million dollars out of the gate which will help keep the cost down which means that the georgia healthcare plan will be more stable than other states that have seen just massive fluctuations 
in the amount of money they're having to pay for health care. Uh, the governor announced part of it yesterday. Jeff Duncan talked to me about it a little bit. And again, I'll get into Jeff Duncan's interview from yesterday uh, at the bottom of the next hour. We'll replay part of it. It's worth replaying if you missed it. But uh, they're going to have more on Monday, and they're trying to brief everybody, give everybody a heads up on what's actually happening. Uh, the The Trump administration looks set to give them the waiver, and a lot of the outside economists are saying, yeah, this is actually going to be good. Now, what is the Democrat argument? You do, to be fair, understand the Democratic argument. The Democratic argument is that we need to move towards uh, a Medicare, not Medicaid, Medicare for all situation. Georgia should fully expand Obamacare right now for the working poor, and they should not limit it. So if you're poor but can get health insurance through an employer, you should be able to have access to the plan, according to the Democrats. Uh, If you're poor but don't meet the threshold of subsidy, you too should be able to get in here if you want. And the uh, Kemp administration is essentially saying that to save costs, to keep costs down, and to make it accessible to people who actually need it, they're going to restrict the people who can come into it. Now, you can say that, well, if you restrict the pool of people for insurance, isn't it going to drive up the overall cost per person? Yes and no. It it could, except they're going to be able to buy into pools of insurance that other people can buy into, that the people who can't get the subsidy, they can buy into these plans as well. And by letting the the, uh, subsidized and the unsubsidized both get into plans, you help lower the overall cost. So you incentivize the people who can't get a subsidy to go into this plan because of its reasonable price, and you incentivize the subsidized person going in and helping bring down the cost. So it's a win-win on both sides. It it makes sense to me that they're doing it. He did not want to expand Obamacare or Medicaid at all in the state, but we really have no choice. The Democrats are already out attacking the plan. They haven't even seen all the details, neither have I, but they're already attacking it, saying it's not enough. And that's going to be an issue that the Democrats are going to have to deal with next year on the campaign trail, is that they want to blow the budget on the state budget to the point that we would have to raise taxes. Remember, the governor wants to cut taxes this coming year, and I don't know that they're going to be able to afford everything. They want to give teachers another pay raise, and they want to cut taxes. The Democrats, meanwhile, they want to give the teachers a pay raise, and they want to make sure everyone is on a public option, including rich people. They can't pay for that. It would bankrupt the state, and yet that is what they want to do, and tax increases will be a big issue. It's going to be a big issue for Elizabeth Warren as well. Elizabeth Warren now under withering fire for her plan, and now she's got a number, $25 trillion, $25 trillion for her Medicaid for all. And that's what it is. It's not Medicare. They call it Medicare, but it's going to be like Medicaid for all. And it's going to cost us $25 trillion, more than our current national debt. And Democrats, Democrats are the ones attacking her. I'll give you the details when we come back. So we got the Georgia-Florida game this weekend. Who's going to Jacksonville? You may be on the road right now uh, on the way to Jacksonville. I assume you're waiting until after work to go to Jacksonville. (laughs) There's nothing in Jacksonville except the Georgia-Florida game. You can go to the beach, except it's going to be beach. It's going to be beach on the cold. It's going to be cold on the beach. Um, as that cold front has come through, uh, lots and lots of people headed down to Jacksonville. looks like they're going to be keeping the, the Georgia Florida game there for a number of years to come. Uh, stay safe. Don't drink and drive all that good stuff. As you head down to Jacksonville, the phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We'll get to Elizabeth Warren here in just a minute, but, 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 but I find this hilarious, a group of climate activists. They were crossing the Atlantic by sailboat. 
They were headed to a UN summit in Chile, and they were. A group of climate activists sailing across the Atlantic. I guess they were going through the Panama Canal. Well, they didn't have any internet. They didn't know. After four weeks, the summit's been canceled. They were they were young environmentalists. They set off from Amsterdam on October 2nd. They were using a sailboat in order to highlight the impact of flying on greenhouse gas emissions. They completed more than half of their seven-week journey to Santiago, Chile. It was supposed to be scheduled in early December. Well, um, everything's being canceled. So they were timing this for the the um, uh, summit, the economic summit that was down there. There was going to be the climate conference as well, uh, COP25, and it's all been canceled. So I, I take that back. It's not that they didn't know. I guess they had had solar power and whatnot, but they're, they're four weeks into their, their journey on the three-hour tour, and <laughs> it's gotten canceled. And now they don't know what to do. There are huge riots in Chile, uh, really big riots down there, uh, protests. 20 people have died. Uh, so, well, they're, they're not going to turn back. They're going to go to Brazil. Isn't this how horror movies start? They, they've sailed across the seas, and now they're going to go to Brazil. They're going to get lost in the jungle, and 20 years from now, they're going to be making movies about whatever happened to the environmentalist group. Um, after the Let's see. After the initial, they've read a statement. After the initial shock and sadness the news brought, everyone came together determined to continue what we started, putting the climate impact of aviation on the international agenda. With Costa Rica and the city of Bonn, Germany, floated as potential alternatives for the conference, the activists say they're sailing to Brazil, meaning they'll be able to attend the eventual summit whenever it happens. If it takes place in Costa Rica, they could change course and head to Central America. Thankfully, hurricane season will be wound down, so they won't have to worry about that. Ah, my goodness gracious. Um... It took Greta Thunberg only 15 days in her yacht to get to New York. These people are, are going to be sailing forever to get to South America. They're going to stink by the time they get there. Um, but yeah, the, so the thing's been canceled. Thing's been canceled. In other news, Georgia Southern has brought Appalachian State uh, to the end of its perfect season. Georgia Southern got 24 uh, to 21 in the football game. It was an upset. Uh, people are complaining about the officiating in, in the game. Um, oh, well. Georgia Southern. Georgia teams doing well. Uh, I, I do have to say, and, and I am I allowed, since Athens is our flagship station on WGAU, am I allowed to say something? If Abby is listening, I apologize in advance. I, I don't mean to cause rioting at, at the radio station in Athens, but um, Tennessee beat South Carolina. I know. So could Georgia State beat Georgia? I, I know. Um, yeah. I just uh, th this Georgia South Carolina game it it still it still pains me. Um, I, I'm assuming that that we will beat Florida, um, but yeah, Tennessee beat South Carolina. Georgia State beat Tennessee. We beat Tennessee. 
Um, by we, I mean UGA. I sh- maybe I shouldn't say we since I'm from Louisiana, but you, you get the point. Um, yeah, well, okay, when we come back, Elizabeth Warren and Mark Zuckerberg killed Aaron Sorkin. We need to discuss this murder. Hello, it is Eric Erickson here, the third hour. Welcome. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. If you would like to be a part of the program, I, Elizabeth Warren, poor Elizabeth Warren. She's got some problems. Now, where is this? I actually printed this story out. Um, it, it, it's, you know, the, so the media has been trying very hard to maybe I didn't print this. Oh no no no! I printed the other thing. I will we'll get to that here in a minute. Um, uh, the media has been trying real hard to make Elizabeth Warren um happen. They they really 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 want Elizabeth Warren. They they really want Elizabeth Warren, and she has a problem. And the Politico has a story out about this problem uh, that she has. And I want to get to it. But first, I want to tell you this hour is brought to you by First Liberty of Georgia. First Liberty Building and Loan. They've been a longtime sponsor. Uh, If you're a small business, medium-sized business, I I highly, uh, genuinely, truly encourage you to reach out. And it doesn't matter where you are in the United States. And that's something I need to emphasize. You don't have to be in Georgia. Anywhere in the nation, if you're listening to me right now, go to firstlibertyga.com. Talk to the Frost family. They can help your business get access to capital without a bank bureaucracy involved. Um, highly recommend them. Firstlibertyga.com. The Frost family, they're good people, great sponsors. You help the show by going to the sponsors. So go to firstlibertyga.com. Elizabeth Warren uh, has a plan for Medicare for all that was clearly not well thought out. In fact, Warren, I I played this again. Uh, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Charlie's telling me I was going to talk about Zuckerberg and Sorkin. We've both been waiting to talk about the story. It's so awesome. But I got to get to Elizabeth Warren first. Um, And I'll do Elizabeth Warren quick, and I may come back to it, because I I really want to talk about the Mark Zuckerberg. It is so awesome. Zuckerberg just killed the guy. I mean, just murdered him with his own words. But anyway, so Elizabeth Warren. Uh, you know, she's been telling people, I've been playing you the audio, that she, a two-penny tax on the rich. Basically, anyone who makes over $400,000 a year, uh, two pennies on every dollar above that uh, would go towards paying for everything. And according to her, it could pay for uh, free college. It could pay for free health care. It could pay for free sensual massages. It, it could pay for everything. Um, and it turns out that it can't. And they, her economists who did it totally forgot that, you know, if you make the rich people pay for stuff, they're going to uh, revise the amount of money they spend and they're going to redirect it to offshore accounts and stuff like that. So you're not going to be able to get it. But her economists, no, 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 we'll come up with ways around that. You can't. You can't. Money can flow like water, and rich people know how to make it happen, and so you're not going to be able to do it. Well, now it turns out that Democrat economists, I'm not talking about Republicans, I'm not talking about fringe economists, I'm talking about mainstream Democratic analysts and economists have looked at her and Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan, and do you know how much it would cost? Over 10 years, 25 trillion 25 trillion dollars over 10 years and you know like every good estimate think about that as on the very low side as unrealistic it's going to be higher than 25 trillion 
I mean, that's the absolute best case scenario, which never happens. $25 trillion over 10 years, more than the current U.S. national debt, more than the U.S. government brings in. The Democrats will essentially have to impose a 45 to 50 cent sales tax, 45 to 50% sales tax, I should say. So for every dollar you spend, you'll need to add two quarters. That's crazy. Who wants that? And this is why the Democrats really do want to try to take out the president right now with impeachment is because they're starting to get worried about Elizabeth Warren. She's doing better than Joe Biden in the polls. She's ahead of Biden in Iowa. If she gets through Iowa, that's going to give her some level of momentum. It's going to hurt. Um, here's the, here's the, here's, um, what is this from? This is from Alex Thompson with the Politico um, on Warren and uh, how much her plan is going to cost. Uh, here's what Warren says. Any plan who opposes my long-term goal of Medicare for all and refuses to answer these questions directly should concede they've got no real strategy on how to, how to control crushing costs. This is a problem. Um, she wants to attack other people, and she wants to put Biden, Klobuchar, and Buttigieg on the defensive. Uh, she wants to essentially say, yeah, my plan's going to cost this much money, but what's your plan? I've got a plan and I've got costs. But it's cray-cray uh, when you actually think about how much it's going to cost. Um, it is going to cost, uh, wait, now, I'm sorry, uh, there's a revision. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I told you it was going to be 25. I got the numbers reversed. It's going to cost $52 trillion. $52 trillion? The Congressional Budget Office, I just got this from a buddy of mine in Washington who's listening. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office projects that all federal spending will be $58 trillion over the same time. So the proposal from Elizabeth Warren would be a 90% increase in federal spending. And undoubtedly, a lot of Democrats will think that is a good thing. Uh, and that, by the way, is just one of her many spending plans. Um, this will kill small business owners. And she says they're going to, to tax it. Um, even Ezra Klein is out complaining about this. Um, let me just read you this thread from Ezra Klein. Uh, there are two parts to Warren's Medicare for all financing plan. The first is how she estimates the total cost. Uh, kudos to her for being detailed and clear. She gets a cost estimate in line with current national health spending by assuming deep cuts to physicians, hospitals, and drug prices, trillions in savings from payment reform like bundled care and ACOs and slower health spending. Uh, that lets her claim an amazing deal. Her plan will cover every single resident of the U.S. with much more generous coverage and no cost sharing. Uh, how convincing you find an estimate relies on how realistic you think the policies are, but that gives Warren a $52 trillion baseline for national health expenditure over 20 years. She then redirects almost federal, state, and local health care spending, which still leaves a $20 trillion hole to pay for her plan. So her next move is Medicare for all uh, will re usually requires middle-class tax increases because you're replacing the trillions employer spend on health premiums so she's going to freeze those trillions in place and she's going to have the employers instead of giving you money to cover your health insurance the employers are going to have to pay the government 
that has weird consequences. It effectively punishes employers who pay for good health care as they're still paying more than their competitors, but without an advantage in recruiting. She says she'll adjust it. The problem is worse for businesses with less than 50 employees, who she says are exempt unless they pay for employee health care. Around half of them do, so they'll be paying a cost their competitors don't with no advantage in the benefits they offer. In other words, what Elizabeth Warren is going to do is, let's say my, let me use my other job. I've got really good health insurance. My wife has cancer. Uh, it is a, a the incurable kind, and she takes a, a very recently developed medicine that keeps her cancer from growing, and it costs $22,000 a month, not a year, a month, $22,000 a month. After insurance uh, were to kick in, uh, it would cost us $16,000 a year or $16,000 a month. But because of our private health insurance, in addition to AstraZeneca um, giving us credits, we don't actually pay out of pocket every month. I pay my company as part of my my uh, payroll. I get the best plan with the the lowest deduction I can. So our monthly out of pocket healthcare costs are as small as possible because uh, the the deductible burdens and everything else. Under Elizabeth Warren's plan, because my company gives me such generous healthcare benefits. They will be punished by the federal government compared to a company that does not give generous health care benefits, which incentivizes my company to punish me now by reducing my health care costs so that if Elizabeth Warren's plan were to go into effect, they wouldn't have to pay the government as much money. Or take your small business. Let's say you're listening right now. Let, let's take – I'm a big fan of RecTech in, in Augusta. If you know RecTech, uh, they are like uh, Traeger but much better built. Uh, if you're looking at a Traeger grill, go over to Augusta and get a RecTech instead. They are way better. Uh, better built, um, all sorts of, of extras. They're just an incredible company. They're a small business. I don't know how many people they have, but let's say they got 50 employees. Uh, they probably got about 100 employees. And they give health insurance to their employees. Well, take a competing business in Augusta that does the same thing but doesn't give health care benefits to their employees. RecTech would get punished by the federal government for having given their health, giving their employees health insurance. RecTech would have to pay extra taxes to the government. That's how Elizabeth Warren wants to do this. It's an, it, this is actual insanity. By Elizabeth Warren, um, you're punishing small businesses for giving their employees health care. You're punishing big businesses by giving their employees good health care compared to their competitors. That's actually this is the way Elizabeth Warren wants to get elected. This is her plan. And you know, the damnedest thing about this, and I'm sorry, I should watch my language on that. But, you know, the craziest thing about this progressives will think this is a good idea. Progressives will think it's a really good idea to punish businesses for giving their employees good health care. Progressives will think it's a really good idea to punish small and medium-sized businesses. Progressives will think it's a good idea. And she won't get a lot of pushback from the press because the press has been trying to make it happen. I mean, th this, is, this is a crazy plan from Elizabeth Warren. $52 trillion. And what she essentially says to pay for half of it is that she will require that every dollar being spent by every city, county, and state, and the federal government, every single dollar being spent right now by cities, counties, states, and the federal government 
will instead go to Medicaid, Medicaid, Medicare for all. So if your if your city right now has a program for drug addicts, a recovery program in your city or your county or your state is paying for the drug addiction recovery of its citizens. They will no longer be allowed to pay for that. They will have to instead send that money to Washington. That's how she intends to pay for half of it. The other half, the other $25 trillion, that's where I was getting the $25 trillion from, the other half of the money would come from taxes. Taxes on employers, taxes on individuals, taxes on the middle class. And you know what the left-wing argument is? Is that, yeah, your taxes will go up, but your health care costs will go down, and your health care costs are more than your taxes, so you'll actually save. That, that's actually their argument. And in many cases, that's not true. In a lot of cases, that's not true. But that's that's the fiction that they're going to pursue with this. It, this this is this is craziness, but this is progressivism, and the media. This is the most mind-numbing thing about it. Is most of the media is not going to hold her accountable on this. You know what she's going to do? She's going to turn the tables on Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Harris and the like, and say, "Listen, Bernie and I both have plans. What's your plan? Yeah, my plan's expensive, but you don't have a plan. I've got a plan. You don't have a plan. Uh, I think that the response is better: no plan that bankrupts America than a plan that does." Y'all, I would like to report a murder. I would like to report a murder. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, he he murdered Aaron Sorkin. Uh, Aaron Sorkin, you know Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin of the uh, West Wing. He wrote West Wing. He wrote The Social Network. He wrote... Um, he, he wrote what the American president is one of his movies. Let he, let me read you Aaron, part of Aaron Sorkin's letter. Uh, in uh, Dear Mark, this is an open letter in the New York Times. Dear Mark, in 2010, I wrote The Social Network, and I know you wish I hadn't. You protested that the film was inaccurate and that Hollywood didn't understand that some people build things just for the sake of building them. We do understand that. We do it every day. It, I didn't push back on your public accusation that the movie was a lie because I'd had my say in theaters, but you and I both know that the screenplay was vetted to within an inch of its life by a team of studio lawyers with one goal and one client. Don't get sued by Mark Zuckerberg. It was hard not to feel the irony when I was reading excerpts from your recent speech at Georgetown University in which you defended, on free speech grounds, Facebook's practice of posting demonstrably false ads from political clients. I admire your deep belief in free speech. I get a lot of use out of the First Amendment. More important, it's a bedrock of our democracy and it needs to be kept strong. But this can't possibly be the outcome you and I want, to have crazy lies pumped into the water supply that corrupt the most important decisions we make together, lies that have a very real and incredibly dangerous effect on our election and our lives and our children's lives. Don't say Larry Flint. Not even Larry Flint would say Larry Flint. This isn't the same as pornography, which people don't rely upon for information. Last year, over 40% of Americans said they got news from Facebook. Of course, the problem could be solved by those people going to a different news source, or you could decide to make Facebook a reliable source of public information. The tagline on the artwork for the social network read in 2010, you don't get to 500 million friends without making a few enemies. The number sounds quaint just nine years later because one third of the planet uses your website. And right now on your website is an ad claiming that Joe Biden gave the Ukrainian attorney general a billion dollars not to investigate his son. Every square inch of that is a lie and under your logo. 
That's not defending free speech, Mark. That's assaulting truth. You and I want speech protections to make sure no one gets imprisoned or killed for saying or writing something unpopular, not to ensure that lies have unfettered access to the American electorate. Before I get to Zuckerberg, I would just like to say that Political speech was the intention, not pornography. You know, pornography in this country has more protection under the First Amendment, thanks to the Supreme Court, than political speech. But political speech was the purpose of the First Amendment, protecting political speech, protecting religion, uh, protecting the press. Uh, they're, They're all aspects of protecting speech. And in free political speech, people have the right to lie, whether you like it or not. I mean, for goodness sakes, the things that go back to 1800, Go back to the 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 uh, claims made on the 1800s about uh, Thomas Jefferson and uh, John Adams. John Adams supporters called Thomas Jefferson a mean-spirited, low-life fellow, the son of a half-breed Indian squaw, sired by a Virginia mulatto father. That was an actual statement made about Thomas Jefferson. The Jefferson campaign said of John Adams, oh, I sneezed. I hit the mute button, though. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson's um, uh, supporter said of John Adams that he was, this is actually a claim made by Thomas Jefferson supporters against John Adams. He was a hideous hermaphroditical character who has neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibilities of a woman. Those were actual lies said that that John Adams was a hermaphrodite and and, uh, Thomas Jefferson was the half-bred, son of a half-breed Indian squaw. Those were the actual lies told by the American founding fathers who wrote the Constitution and the First Amendment. You may not like that lies get said in politics, but lies get said in politics all the time. If you like your plan, you can keep your plan. That is a lie that the Democrats would have been fine airing. In fact, the Democrats defended it and said it wasn't a lie. And now here come these. Oh, Donald Trump is doing well on Facebook. We must hate Facebook. We must get Facebook to shut him down. I mean, that's essentially what it is. They were fine with lies being spread by Barack Obama on Facebook. They just don't like that Donald Trump kicked their butt on Facebook. So what was Mark Zuckerberg's response to this? He put up a quote on his Facebook page, no less. America isn't easy. America is advanced citizenship. You got to want it bad because it's going to put up a fight. It's going to say you want free speech. Let's see you acknowledge a man whose words make your blood boil, who's standing center stage and advocating at the top of his lungs that which you would spend a lifetime opposing at the top of yours. You want to claim this land is the land of the free? Then the symbol of your country can't just be a flag. The symbol also has to be the one of its citizens exercising his right to burn the flag in protest. Show me that. Defend that. Celebrate that in your classrooms. Then you can stand up and sing about the land of the free. That's Aaron Sorkin writing in The American President, the movie where he was the screenwriter. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg throwing Aaron Sorkin's own words in his face. Listen, if the media and the government are stepping in to tell you that what you say is a lie, then you don't have free speech. You have the right to lie under the First Amendment. You may be held accountable for that lie. You may defame someone and be sued for that lie. There, there are repercussions for your lies. But you can lie under the First Amendment. 
Donald or Barack Obama said, if you like your health care plan, you can keep your health care plan. And that was a lie. And that was a lie the media defended as true. Could he have run that on Facebook? Because the media said it was true, but it turned out to be a lie. But they don't want to talk about that. They only want to talk about Donald Trump. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-973-7425. 877 973 7425. Uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I do. Um, I'm going to go there. Let me, let me go on a, a little bit of a deep dive here. Or actually, you know, it's not even a deep dive, it's a 50,000 look down. Yesterday was Halloween, and I, I have – so this is, this is the moment in the show where you realize um, – or, or some of you may think, okay, this guy, maybe he's a little nuts. <laughs> Everybody around me now braces. Um, it, it is essentially a part of our Western Judeo-Christian heritage that we value free speech. The reason is because, historically, going back to the Roman Empire, um, it was the lack of free speech and the free exercise of a religion that allowed the Romans to persecute the Christians. As Christianity advanced and they sought to put aside paganism, um, Christianity, particularly as exercised by the Catholic Church in the 14th, 15th, 16th century, was pretty brutal. And it led to the rise of the Reformation 502 years ago yesterday when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And one of the values that came out of the Reformation and spread particularly to uh, English-speaking society as the British Empire spread was the idea of free speech was the idea of an exercise of religion. The founders in this country were very mindful of the fact, historically, the number of wars in Europe and elsewhere uh, that came about because of religious differences, particularly in continental Europe, uh, Protestants versus Catholics, various denominations of Protestants fighting each other. And so they prided themselves in supporting the uh, a robust free speech and a robust allowance of the exercise of religion. People forget that in the colonies and even in the early states, the states themselves had organized religion. In in Georgia, the Baptist church and the state were joined at the hip. In Maryland, it was the Catholic church Uh, because the First Amendment didn't apply to the states. It only applied to the federal government until the 14th Amendment. And uh, thereafter, the the free exercise and, and the Establishment Clause were applied to the states, incorporated against the states through the 14th Amendment. But up until that point, a lot of states had had laws that uh, established religions in those states, and they were all Judeo-Christian oriented, but of of, uh, various forms of collaboration. Many states, as Irish Catholics came into this country, they became very, very Catholic, uh, very, very anti-Catholic, and passed Bain Amendments or Blaine Amendments, which prohibited state money from going to any religious institution, and it had everything to do with blocking Catholic institutions. But this idea of free speech and free exercise of religion comes out of our Christian, Judeo-Christian heritage in the West. And it is not a surprise to me at all that as Christianity declines in the West, we are seeing this ugly authoritarian uh, stuff 
rise. And you can say, well, Trump is authoritarian, but Trump's not really uh, into religion, is he? I mean, he just put a heretic in charge of religious outreach, a, a prosperity gospel minister who's been divorced repeatedly and believes that Jesus isn't the only begotten son of God. She said that on video. I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm struck by the changes in culture in the West, particularly in the United States in the last few years. And I, I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day, and I got to be careful how I say this. Um, and I've mentioned this before, but I, I got a little bit more of a runway in the clock here to, to, to be more nuanced here. I, my wife has tattoos. I, I, I don't care about tattoos. I don't have them. Uh, most of my friends do. Um, but I just, I find it very interesting that increasingly I'm in the minority of people I know when it comes to tattoos. It is, there's been a resurgence of people getting tattoos in the last number of years. Uh, You now find a lot of uh, hipster preachers in their skinny jeans covered in tattoos, and they're all countercultural. It's almost countercultural today to not have tattoos. It's amazing how people want to be individual and individualistic and stand out and be unique, and and basically it's, it's everybody goes out and gets a tattoo conforming. I, there was a cartoon I saw the other day. Um, we're the nonconformist, individualist, unique society. Just read this book and do what we do. But one of the things, if you go back in, into scripture in the Old Testament in particular, the Israelites were prohibited from getting tattoos. Now, the presumption there, just, just follow along with me here, if you will. The presumption there has to be, if if God was telling them they needed to stand out from everyone else, so don't get tattoos, don't wear mixed fabric clothing, things like that, um, that these rules to set Israel apart meant that these other civilizations did stuff like that. And we know uh, from archaeology that, in fact, the other cultures surrounding Israel uh, did have a lot of body art and tattoos and, and things like that. And so Israel distinguished itself by being a society that didn't have tattoos. You could, in, a, in essence, pick out an Israelite uh, from a Canaanite by who didn't have the tattoos. It was a very common thing in the pagan culture to have tattoos. And Christianity carried that over to a degree, although I, I call this stuff. I, every once in a while, someone will call the show or they'll send me an email or say something on Twitter, and they'll say, do you eat shellfish? Do, do you wear mixed fabric? clothes. Um, well, you can't be a good Christian because the Bible says not to. Well, no, Christianity has has moved into the New Testament, and, and the the rules that set the tribes, set Israel apart, and the cleanliness laws, the ceremonial laws, those all went away with Christ. He made very clear now. I call this the shibboleth of the damned, by the way. You know the word shibboleth in the story that the Israelites could say the sh sound. Um, the Canaanites, uh, the, I think it was the Amorites, they couldn't say sh, they could only say s. So... It, Israel would require people coming across the Jordan to say the word shibboleth. And if they could say shibboleth, they knew they were Israelite. If they couldn't, if they said sibboleth, they knew they were the enemy and they would be killed. Um, the shibboleth of the damned is uh, you say that, uh, well, you know, you're a Christian. You can't eat shellfish and you can't wear mixed fabric clothing. That's someone who's posing as a Christian. 
that's not a real Christian. It's the shibboleth of the dam. When someone says that, you know they're not a Christian because Christianity has a very clear doctrine on this that uh, these were the ceremonial laws of Israel to set them apart on cleanliness grounds from the other people around them, and that all faded away, and Christ made very clear. Uh, the moral law stands, the ceremonial law and the civil law do not, and the moral law has nothing to do with tattoos. But what I find interesting is uh, for a long time, Christianity held this over in popular belief on tattoos, that, that if, if you're Christian, you shouldn't get tattoos. Well, that has faded into culture, and a lot of these elements that, that Judeo-Christian Christianity, which isn't necessarily the Christianity of the Bible, cultural Christianity, if you will, set them aside, push them aside. Um, what happens is we're now seen as, as Christianity declines in the West and paganism rises in the West, the, the alternatives to Christianity. Religion's not going away. Some things that Christians long suppressed, like tattoos, frankly, are coming back uh, in, a, in a broader subset of people across Christianity and outside of Christianity. That doesn't mean people are sinning by getting tattoos. I want to be clear here. It's just that cultural Christianity put some parameters on society, and those parameters are now fading. One of those other parameters uh, within cultural Christianity was a free speech. Now, you and I could agree to disagree on many things, and for years it was the left uh, that was all about free speech. Uh, the left defended free speech, but again, the left was also boxed in with these parameters of a cultural morality derived from a cultural Western Christian mindset, and as that cultural Christian mindset in the West collapses, a lot of the values that even the left maintained as we spoke a common tongue and common idiomatic expressions, they're all beginning to collapse. So, for example, the left now supports a more authoritarian position on free speech. The The right's position is that you have the right to be offended. You don't have to listen. You can change the channel. That used to be the left's position, and now the left's like, no, 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 we need to use the state to shut you up. In a society that still believed in a, a, a Judeo-Christian West where you had free speech benefited the church and free speech benefited uh, religion, we now have a society that does not view Christianity as something that's well worth keeping in society. And so they're willing to shut down religion. They're willing to shut down speech. Look at Beto O'Rourke willing to use the state to punish churches uh, for disagreeing on whether or not homosexuality is a sin, whether or not gay marriage is something that is appropriate under the Bible, transgenderism, things like that. Uh, the values of the West are turning towards a paganism. We see this with abortion. Abortion has become a sacrament on the left. You know, there's a big story out of Ireland. The Irish uh, have abolished um, their, their pro-life laws. It's now you now have abortion on demand in Ireland, and the Irish state is insisting that even, even Catholic hospitals perform abortions, and Catholic doctors, more than a 1,000 of them, have come forward and said, you can take our license. We're not going to perform abortions. And the state is saying, okay, we're going to shut you down. It is this, this recurrent paganism that is coming up. Um, there's a story out as well that in uh, societies where there's a lot of disease, scientists are saying, hey, you know, disease makes people think there are demons and, and evil as a correlation and causation there. People don't believe in, in the things unseen anymore, except they do. Religion is not going away. The, the the authoritarianism within the free speech community now on college campuses, more than half of college campuses, more than half of students on college campuses believe that Halloween costumes that offend them should be punished. Three quarters of students on Ivy League campuses think that speech that offends them or is hateful should be silenced and the people should be punished. What's happening is 
this paganism that is taking over the country as Christianity declines is presenting itself very much as paganism of, of ancient times. Uh, there really are no new ideas under the sun. Dissent within pagan communities was a bad thing. Christianity was punished in Rome because it was viewed as dissent. Do you know that, that one of the, the accusations against Christians were that they were atheists and that no normal people could be atheists? Because Christians said they believed in a in a risen living God, and the Romans said all gods are dead gods, uh, meaning that you worshipped the dead, you didn't worship the living, and if Jesus was living, well, then he wasn't really a god, therefore you were an atheist and you should be killed. We see these sorts of perversions of religion now with the way the left is going on, on college campuses and in the dismissal of Christianity and the, the dismissal of religion while also the, embracing their own religion. Astrology has made a comeback. On college campuses, uh, people want their fortunes told. People want the lines on their hands read. People are getting into tarot cards. I'm not making that up. There's actually a huge trend on college campuses and in, in urban areas. The fortune teller is making a comeback as the church declines. These old forms of paganism coming back. Christians could coexist with others because Christians for so long had been the persecuted minority, but others cannot coexist with Christianity. The people who have the coexist bumper sticker on the back of their cards tend to be the most intolerant people. It is a, a new form of paganism that is deeply religious. It holds deeply faithful views on transgenderism, on homosexuality, on, uh, on climate Climate becomes the new big one. Everything becomes blamed on climate. Everything is climate change. The fires in California are about climate change. It's a religious belief. It doesn't matter what the science says. Does the science say that the climate is the climate is changing? Yes, the science says it. Does the climate say? Or does the science say that the world is going to come to an end in ten years? Nope. But it is a a article of faith on the left that yes, it is. Because the science says so, except the science doesn't say it. The science says that the fires in California are cyclical in nature. They've been going on since before recorded weather uh, patterns in California from the 1800s were established. We know from documented history in California in the 1700s, 1600s, 1500s, 1400s, that there were wildfires all the time. At this time of year, we know the drought cycles. We know the rain cycles. We know it from historic archaeological anthropological evidence. And yet somehow it's climate change now when it wasn't climate change 400 years ago. By faith, we're to believe these things. By faith, we're to believe that Christianity is the intolerant bigot. By faith, we're to believe that society should be open and tolerant of everything except intolerance. But how do you define intolerance? You define intolerance as the things that I don't like. What we're seeing is the development, the redevelopment of a pagan religion in the United States and a Western society as a whole that is trying to shake out its dogmatic, theocratic, uh, uh, doctrinal, orthodox beliefs, and they shift. It took Christians a couple hundred years to solidify the doctrine of the Trinity. It did not take Christians long to develop the, the Apostles' Creed. You, you understand the Apostles' Creed is not the original creed. The original creed, as best we can tell, was the Roman Creed, which was, I believe, in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ his Son, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, buried, uh, raised again on the third day, and I believe in the Catholic Church and the Holy Spirit and the communion of saints. That was it. They added the other lines uh, over time, over a couple hundred years, to the Apostles' Creed, including the descent into hell and things like that. 
Uh, but the original, we can find evidence of it within about 50 to 75 years of Jesus that the Apostles' Creed in, in basic form was there as the Roman Creed. It's what the Roman Christians said. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary, crucified uh suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. I believe in the Holy Spirit. We find that within 100 years, less than 100 years of Christ dying. Uh, but it took a long time to shape out, to shake out the doctrine of the Trinity, the the doctrine of, of uh, the resurrection, how it, the, the doctrine of um, sanctification, of justification, of all these things. It took some time to really pull those out of Scripture for everybody to get on the same page. What we're seeing in the secular West right now is the same thing happening as they shake out the doctrines of wokeness. They shake out the doctrines of wokeness on speech. Speech is, is bad. They shake out the doctrines of um, big business. Big business is bad because big business contributes to climate change, and climate change is bad. These are all doctrinal positions that are coming out of the left, uh, very much as Christians fought and bickered up to the uh, Nicene Creed and the, the Council of Nicaea under Constantine. We're seeing this with the left right now. The problem is that you didn't see Christians going out there punishing other people uh, in the run-up to the doctrinal agreements uh, as they were shaking out their doctrines, different areas disagreed, and they agreed to disagree, and they agreed to debate. With the left's religion that's coming, we're no longer allowed to debate. We're not even allowed to stand in the town square. You either get on board or you don't. And the problem we see with this as well is that these doctrines change repeatedly. And so now you see leftists who are on the right side of history suddenly on the wrong side of history because a group became more woke than the previous group. And the country and Western values and free speech, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, they're all held hostage to these shifting degrees of wokeness, this rise of paganism again in, the Western, in Western society. It is not a good thing. It is a dangerous thing. And what happens is society in the West moves more and more towards totalitarianism. It is laughable to see the left say that Donald Trump is totalitarian. It is laughable to see the left say Donald Trump is authoritarian when time and time again, what do they want? They want to control our health care. They want to control our jobs. They want to control our education. They want to control our churches. They want to control our children. They want to control our speech. The pagan left rising in this country are the new authoritarian. Well, I, I, this audio just came in to me. We got to play it. It happened just uh, while I was uh, giving you my dissertation on, on new neo-paganism in the West. <laughs> Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler. Well, actually, this was just Jerry Nadler talking. Listen to this. Let's see. Now that the resolution has passed, when, when can the American <laughs> people expect to see open hearings? Might it be as early as the week after That you should really ask Chairman Schiff, and uh, it depends on... on on, on the speed of, with which the speed with which things go there and I, I can't answer that question how crucial is john bolton's testimony to tell the um, building the public case that you hope to build against president trump I don't want to answer that either. Uh, you know, the Democrats have now found themselves in this very, very funny position with impeachment where they said they wanted to have that vote yesterday to begin public hearings, and now they don't want to have public hearings. So the Republicans are like, well, why, why did you vote yesterday? On top of that, uh, Democrats are in the Senate are actually a little bit upset now because they've done the math, and they know that Mitch McConnell will be in charge 
And as Mitch McConnell is in charge of the impeachment trial, now technically John Roberts is, but Mitch McConnell, as, as the majority leader in the Senate and the Republicans holding the majority, they'll be able to set when the trial begins. John Roberts will not be able to set when the trial begins. They also have to balance the Supreme Court. John Roberts has to hear cases in the Supreme Court. So they know that Mitch McConnell can allow the trial to begin in January. Six senators are running for president of the United States. And the rules of the Senate will require them to be there. The rules of the Senate allow the Senate sergeant-at-arms to detain them and prevent them from leaving Washington, D.C. if they try to. And they want a campaign for president. Amy Klobuchar, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, um, uh, who else is is in there? Uh, Elizabeth Warren, I'm missing two of them, Um, running for president of the United States. And Joe Biden's going to be able to be on the campaign trail with Pete Buttigieg. Oh, Bernie Sanders is there. Bernie Sanders, I'm missing one. Um, Is Michael Bennett? Um, No. Anyway. um, So you got six senators running for president. And Mitch McConnell is going to ensure that they can't go to Iowa for the caucuses. They can't go campaign before Iowa. They can't even participate in the January debate before Iowa because of the Senate trial. So Joe Biden is going to be able to campaign. Pete Buttigieg is going to be able to campaign. Beto O'Rourke is going to be able to campaign. They're starting to realize this is a problem. They're starting to realize this could hurt their fundraising. And then, you know, if they're fundraising on this and they're in the Senate, uh, Donald Trump can say, look, this is a partisan witch hunt. They want an ad campaign against me and totally discredit impeachment by having these six senators there. This isn't working out the way the Democrats intended, and that's actually kind of funny. It just doesn't feel like summer without an ice-cold Coca-Cola in your hand. Stop by Speedway today and grab three 20-ounce bottles of Coca-Cola or Coca-Cola Zero Sugar and get 500 speedy reward points. Or pick up even more delicious refreshment with a 20-ounce bottle of Diet Coke, Sprite, or Fanta. So no matter how you soak in that summer sun, at home or on the go, grab an ice-cold Coca-Cola at Speedway and enjoy. Enjoy. 